It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy and this week we're asking Brexit, what next? May won a vote of no confidence brought by her own backbenchers last night on the 12th of December. So the Prime Minister at bay over her proposed Brexit deal can remain leader of the Conservative Party for a year. She's again tasked with getting Brexit through Parliament, not an easy road, and she's pledged to heal divisions and address grievances. Following this ballot, we now need to get on with the job of delivering Brexit for the British people and building a better future for this country. A Brexit that delivers on the votes that people gave, that brings back control of our money, our borders and our laws, that protects jobs, security and the union, that brings the country back together rather than entrenching division. That must start here in Westminster, with politicians on all sides coming together and acting in the national interest. On the 23rd of June 2016, in a referendum, the British people voted narrowly to leave the European Union. Today, it's still no clearer how that happens. The best part of two years has been spent in a tussle about the deal, both with Brussels and often in her own ranks in the Conservative Party. The sticking points of the withdrawal deal are the Irish border and the so-called backstop arrangement, keeping the UK in a customs union with the EU for an unspecified amount of time, while the round of haggling on trade deals gets going in earnest. But that's outraged many, particularly on the Brexit wing of her party. They believe it ties the UK far too closely to the EU it wants to leave. John Pete, our Brexit editor, is here with us. Uh, John, that's the background. Last night was the drama. May won that vote by around two thirds, not quite, but nearly. Sounds OK on first inspection. Well, it does mean that she will be there for a, a while longer, probably for another year. So I think um, from the point of view of the rest of the European Union, they now know they're going to be dealing with the same prime minister uh, over the, the closing stages of this of this Brexit deal. But the underlying problem that she had, which in a way triggered the confidence vote, which is that she seems unable to muster a majority in the House of Commons for the Brexit deal she has negotiated with the rest of the EU, is still there. And the EU is making very clear, not surprisingly, that having spent two years and negotiating a detailed legal text for how Britain should leave, they're not prepared to reopen that text. There are two things that we could maybe dig into there. One is whether she's really there for another year. Now, she's clearly there through the next round of negotiations. It's interesting that both she and Angela Merkel, the main people she has talked to on the European side, are kind of both there but in the departure lounge of power. Theresa May is obviously under far greater pressure. Some people I was talking to, a lot of Brexiteers from Cabinet and around last night, saying, you know, this was just about good enough a result 
but it might not get her through the year. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, from from now onwards, if it wasn't true before, people will be starting to say, OK, the next stage is who is going to take over from Theresa May as prime minister and who is going to lead the Conservative Party into the next election. And I think that that will be part of the backdrop to all the negotiations that go on um, into into 2019. She will be there, I, I think, certainly for the next six months or so. But after that, people will start to say, who's who's next? You've said in what you've written today that there won't be much movement on the EU side. Am I being impossibly optimistic in reading some statements that talk about facilitating agreement in that marvellous EU speaking in which you're so practised to read it as we can't and won't revisit the deal, but we will try perhaps through language or by going into what those legal arrangements might be to give the UK more assurance? Uh, there will certainly be be quite a lot of movement on that. I'm not sure it'll happen, you know, immediately today or tomorrow at the, at the European summit in Brussels. But I think over the next two or three weeks, I would expect the rest of the EU to be willing to come up with all sorts of declarations, language, promises, undertakings that really this Irish backstop, we don't want to use it, it won't be a permanent arrangement, uh, don't worry too much about it. The EU has form in doing this. When something has been rejected in the past, they've come up with lots of declarations to satisfy, as it were, the Danes or the Irish or some other country that is having what they call difficulty ratifying an agreed treaty. So but why not for us? I think the problem is that, that what the hard Brexiteers want is a really substantial change to the legal text of the withdrawal agreement. They want it either to dump the backstop altogether or to come up with some completely different arrangement that might look more like a, a Canadian free trade deal or some other people are arguing for something that looks more like a Norwegian option. I, I just think that having spent two years negotiating this deal, the rest of the EU is not going to be prepared to go down that road. And they see the numbers in Westminster and they conclude quite probably rightly, that almost anything they do is unlikely to be approved by the Westminster Parliament. You and I have been talking to Stephen Kinnock, a prominent Labour supporter of a Norway-type solution. He's going to lay that out for us in just a moment. But what do you think the prognosis is for Theresa May? Let's say she's allowed, we know that she likes a, a small gin and tonic uh, now and then, and who could begrudge her one over Christmas after this? She comes back in January, she still has to move to a vote. I think it's pretty clear she can't do what she did last time and then back away from a vote. Do you think she can peel off some of those Brexiteer doubters? I think insofar as she has a strategy, which I'm doubtful about sometimes, I think it's probably to rely on the pressure of time. She will continually point out to people that Britain is due to leave the European Union on the 29th of March. Uh, next year. Uh, and that actually is a pretty pretty near deadline. And I think what she would hope to do during during over Christmas and during January is, is, to, is to bang the drum with her own backbenchers and say, look, if you don't agree with this deal, you may get a worse outcome. It could be a no deal Brexit, which is more damaging for the, for the British economy than my deal. Uh, or if you're very difficult about it, people might end up saying maybe we should have another referendum and cancel Brexit altogether. So she's going to try and peel off people uh, on the basis that they'd rather have this, even if it's not a very good deal, than the alternative which could be worse. I'm not sure that will work, but that will be her strategy. Well, at least she knows the numbers now because she's had the confidence vote. So to take the temperature in a dramatic week in British politics, just before that vote on Theresa May's future... I headed down to Westminster 
to meet with Stephen Kinnock. He's a British Labour MP in Wales, a Remainer and son of Neil Kinnock, the former leader of the Labour Party and vice president of the European Commission. He's also married to the former Danish Prime Minister, Helle Thorning-Schmidt. And we were joined by John Peet, our Brexit editor. I started by asking Stephen Kinnock where the Prime Minister's dance on the edge of a precipice left the broader outlook for Brexit. Well, I think everybody is looking for a get-out-of-jail card. And I think that there's a strong, silent majority of MPs who definitely don't want no deal, but also don't want a second referendum, very worried about how divisive that would be. So I think we've got to find a middle way through this. And I think in many ways, once her deal is voted down, uh, the more the clock is ticking, the more we urgently need that get-out-of-jail card. I I really hope that we will see the Prime Minister realising that she needs to pivot to Norway Plus. Uh, And if she whips her MPs in favour of that, I think it puts uh, the leadership of my party in uh, a position where they have to accept that, well, we're asking for a customs union and a strong single market deal. That sounds like Norway plus to me. And if we could have the leadership of both parties whipping for this, uh, then we have well over 400 votes and uh, we can move forward. John, you wrote a a big piece for us, a consideration of the Norway option some time ago. It still seems to be one of those options that floats about if Theresa May's deal doesn't fly or something like it. But just tell us briefly, what is the Norway option? Stephen Kinnick there, confidently using the phrase Norway plus. Most people haven't got their head around Norway, let alone Norway plus. What's the difference? Well, the, the essential point about Norway is that they're not in the European Union, but for economic reasons, they wanted to be in the European Union single market. And that requires you to observe basically pretty well all of single market regulations, although they're not actually part of the common agricultural policy either. But it gives them the benefit of full access and full membership of the the single market. The reason that people say Norway plus is because um, with Northern Ireland which is one of the problems for Theresa May's deal you'd have to have something on top of Norway to make sure there are no customs and no no controls at the Irish border so Norway plus would essentially be the Norwegian model plus membership of a customs union which is much more closely aligned to the European Union than her current deal. And isn't that the problem, John, just before we throw that back to Stephen, that you do get to the point where you're so close. It's like Zeno's paradox. You're so close to EU membership, you might as well not have bothered to leave. And that's what bothers Brexiteers, that it doesn't really respect that anything changed. Well, it is the option that Norway ended up in when their voters told them, we don't want you to join the European Union. They ended up in this situation. And it's not, you can see the dynamic that might easily drive Britain into this situation. A, a lot of people don't think it's sustainable in the long run because it's difficult. It, it's an awkward arrangement where Norway does essentially have to take the rules that are laid, laid down in Brussels. And it's very closely aligned to everything that goes on the European Union without having a say over them. It suits the Norwegians. It could conceivably work, work for Britain, but I think the jury is out on whether, whether it would. Stephen, is this a transitional destination for you, this Norway or Norway Plus, or is it actually where you want to end up? Do you think the UK could analogously adopt the Norwegian position vis-à-vis the EU? I think that the 52-48 result was a mandate to move house but to stay in the same neighbourhood. 
Parliament has spent the last two years trying to interpret the mandate. That has always been my view. You're never going to get a perfect understanding of what every single one of those 17.5 million people who voted Leave voted for. But if you take the mandate at its uh, highest level, it is about keeping a very strong, constructive and productive economic relationship, but leaving the political institutions, leaving that, if you like, that ratchet of ever closer union, reassuring the British people that we've taken one step back. And I think that that is in line with the history and political culture and political temperament uh, of our country, actually. And we've always had that difficult uh, relationship with the European Union. So I actually see this as an opportunity to also feed into thinking about a multi-tier Europe. President Macron, for example, has spoken um, you know, quite passionately about the need for the EU to take a more flexible and decentralised approach. What A one-size-fits-all, top-down approach to integration hasn't worked for the EU either. So I actually see this as, you know, Brexit was clearly a reset moment for the United Kingdom. It's potentially a reset moment for the European Union, where they could finally start to deliver uh, on this multi-tier, multi-speed Europe. And we would be then, I think, a strong voice in an outer tier of countries that could potentially be enlarged to include some of the Scandinavian countries, the Central and Eastern European countries, who also are not really part of that core integrationist project. And for those of our listeners who don't know you or or your history, I think it's quite interesting talking to you when you talk about that distance from an integrationist project. Your father was Neil Kinnock, Labour leader, who at subsequent to that role went on to become a very ardent pro-European, also sort of served in the EU. Would you say that you personally, and perhaps also your generation, has a bit of a more nuanced or even distanced relationship with the EU than those of a pro-European strike, be it Ken Clark in the Conservative Party or Neil Kinnock in the Labour Party? What I want is for the United Kingdom to establish a, a relationship with the European Union that enjoys democratic consent so that we can finally establish an engagement which is comfortable for us, which will enable us to get past this psychodrama of uh, our politics and our relationship with the European Union, which has absorbed so much energy uh, and so much time and cost us so much. Uh, and, and I think you, sometimes, you know, if you, you cherish something, and I, I'm passionately pro-European, but I also know that sometimes to, to cherish things, you need to change them. And by taking a step back, recalibrating the relationship, I think we could actually create a much more positive dynamic, both in terms of our relationship with the EU, but also in terms of of the European project and its need to become a more uh, multi-tier, multi-speed setup. Sounds like an answer, John. Pete, does it work? Well, I mean, I think it could work um, in, in, in an ideal world. I mean, what really worries me most about it now is that we're running out of time. And I think, I think it would have been a possible option to go down, and it's one that I can see some advantages to, had we, had we sort of started to talk about this back in June 2016. Uh, and I think one of the big problems with the situation we're now in is that the clock is ticking towards March 29th next year. Um, at the moment, the government only has one deal on the table, which clearly seems unacceptable to the to the House of Commons and I think pivoting to this model at that late stage will be quite complicated and quite tricky to carry out and there is a risk that that, that instead of that Britain might crash out with no deal at all. 
Yes, I mean, I, I, none of this is easy, but the uh, big advantage of Norway Plus is it doesn't require any changes to the withdrawal agreement. It only means amending the political declaration. The biggest weakness May's deal has is that the political declaration is a truckload of fudge. It's full of vague and meaningless platitudes. We need something where we actually, we're spending £39 billion, we know what we're buying. If we could amend the political declaration, which I think can be done relatively quickly, I think that commands a cross-party majority and is acceptable to to the European Union. You've got this truckload of fudge. Yeah. Lovely image. Probably going to end up stuck at Calais. But you've got a truckload (laughs) of fudge. Um, But what would you put in the political declaration that wouldn't just be something that ends up being traded around in conferences in continental Europe to sort of give us something, but people who are opposed would say, well, we didn't really get anything. Well, the big advantage of the EEA, of course, is that it's a well-established international uh, treaty. The EEA agreement has existed since 1993, so you know exactly what you're plugging into. So by changing the political declaration to, in essence, say, we will join the European Economic Area via the EFTA pillar, we will seek a derogation from EFTA so that we can have a customs union with the European Union, thus delivering on the uh, Irish border, from the 30th of March, the negotiations will start specifically and explicitly uh, towards that objective. And it's actually the only option which would be negotiable and, and could be ratified by the end of the transition period in December 2020. Theresa May's deal has no chance of doing that because it's so vague and full of platitudes. You'd spend at least a year and a half negotiating it and then another two or three years ratifying it. Stephen Kinnock accounted there for quite a a lot of problems and and possibilities and tensions, but he didn't mention immigration. And isn't that really one of the reasons why Norwegian models don't really so easily get off the ground, given that the perception, at least, is that a lot of voters voted to leave the EU because they wanted more control of immigration from the EU? I I think that is a problem. Um, You know, the the fact is that if you're in the Norway model of the European Economic Area, you do have to accept all four freedoms, including freedom of movement of, of people. As it happens, the numbers coming have fallen very substantially from the European Union, and there is a possibility of a rather theoretical emergency break in the Norwegian Treaty with, with, with the European Union. But I think it will be a difficult for those who want to go down this road to persuade their their parliamentary colleagues to buy something that actually looks as if it keeps largely intact free movement of people. Look, I mean, there seem to be three options on the table. We either leave with no deal at all, where, yes, you can do what you like on uh, movement of labour then, but you absolutely wreck the British economy. Or we have a second referendum and we remain, in which case you can certainly do nothing at all about free movement of labour. Or through the Norway Plus option, you do, as John rightly said, there's two articles in the EEA agreement which which are safeguard measures and which can be triggered unilaterally by any contracting party uh, and suspend the free movement of, well, any one of the movements. If you suddenly had a surge that was felt to be uncomfortable. You make a case based on environmental, social, or political or economic factors. Then there is a conference with the European Commission to try and agree a way forward. If a way forward can't be agreed, the EU is not able to reverse the decision you've taken, but they can take retaliatory measures. However, those, well, that doesn't re- sound good. those retaliatory measures have to be in proportion with and in accordance with the original action. It's a palaver, now, I am isn't not it, really? saying. I mean, it's a bit of a palaver. Look, it, it, you know, I mean, it's the, the EU will always protect the integrity of the single market, and they see the four freedoms as indivisible. But I am simply making the point that if you compare membership to EEA, you've at least got a treaty-based 
safeguard measure. Whether or not you choose to make it is a deeply sensitive political issue and something that we would not take lightly. But it's there in the treaty in black and white. And I think that's important. The Economist has just come out with a defence of the idea of a second referendum as a possible resolution to this. John, do you think we're heading that way? Is the Norway option a kind of way marker to there or is it last resort? I think the the reason why it, it's sort of growing in, in, in attraction and why more people are talking about it is that they see Parliament gridlocked and unable to agree on any conceivable Brexit deal. And as Stephen has said, Almost all sensible members of Parliament think that to leave with no deal would be disastrous and very bad for the economy. So if you're in that gridlock situation, the idea of saying, let's see what the people think, is becoming an appealing one. The problem that it has is, uh, what precise question would you put to people? Are you going to put a whole string of options to them, one of which might be the Norwegian option? Or do you have a much more straightforward decision to say either you accept the, the deal that Theresa May has negotiated or you remain in the EU. That will be argued about a lot, but I think the concept of a new vote for the people is something is growing in appeal. Second vote, yes or no? Uh, I'm not in favour. Um, I am deeply worried about the impact it would have on Parliament. I think there's millions of people in the country already hold this place in contempt. I take an old-fashioned view that it's up to parliamentarians to navigate us through messy situations like that, and I think it would potentially cause a constitutional crisis for us and for Parliament as an institution. Would you rather see a second election than a second referendum in that case? Uh, an election would be a better way of getting these complex issues out, but the fundamental uh, challenge for my party is, what would we be saying? What would be in our manifesto? We're calling for uh, a customs union and a strong single market deal. Well, that sounds like Norway plus to me. Stephen Kinnock and John Pete, thank you very much. Thank, thank you very much. Thanks. Do get in touch with us with your thoughts on all this and what kind of Brexit deal you'd like to find in your Christmas hamper. Give us some answers to the mess. Write to us radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.